Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I, I brought in someone, I've been wanting to get him in for a while, and, and uh, we finally got it worked out. Uh, John Donnelly is a governmental affairs, or quote, lobbyist, with Divine Donnelly and Murray here in Topeka. And John generally, he's got a kind of a, a variety of clients, but I know him mostly as the ag lobbyist. He, he represents a lot of ag interest, and most notably their, their flagship uh, client is the Kansas Farm Bureau. So John and I get to talk quite a bit about uh, ag issues in the state, and I always find his information helpful. So I thought I'd bring him in and pick his brain a little bit and, and let you all listen. Thanks, John, for coming in today. All right. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I, uh, I always tell people that I'm a lobbyist and an attorney. So the reason that is, is because I had a great seventh and eighth grade English teacher that taught me what a double negative is. So if I'm going to be negative in one professional capacity, I need to be negative in another professional capacity. And it makes me an all right guy is what I like to tell myself. The double negative is a positive. Right? Yeah, right. Two negatives make a positive. So here I am. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I, I kind of wanted to start start in on. You you grew up on, on the family farm out in Ellsworth County. And, uh, and so you grew up farming and ranching. And somewhere along the way, you decided that I want to be an attorney. Can you talk with me a little bit about how you made that decision? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's always a surprise. In fact, I was uh, when I left uh, the family farm and ranch and went to Kansas State University, I was an animal science uh, major. Uh, in fact, I was looking at maybe becoming a veterinarian, and then physics too happened and realized that that probably wasn't the path for me. Uh, we I then graduated with an animal science degree and went to work for the Kansas Beef Council. Uh, I kind of did some producer communication uh, and some of the, the, the functional part of the beef checkoff program here in the state of Kansas uh, as it relates to the the, the, the assessment. Um, from there, uh, I actually had gotten to know my now partner, Allie Devine. She was general counsel for the Kansas Livestock Association. And I don't know what she saw in me, but she kept pushing me to go to law school. And I thought, nah, why not? Uh, so I was I was not married yet. I actually got married right before we uh, my, I started law school. Um, but I was young and dumb and thought it was a good idea. So there I went, uh, went to law school and actually clerked with a couple of law firms, one in Wichita and one in Salina, Kansas, during my summers. And uh, once upon graduation, I made the decision that governmental affairs was what I wanted to do. I'd worked for the Livestock Association as an intern uh, while I was in law school. And uh, I was drawn to that, uh, to, to this environment. I, I don't know why, but I was, and, and here I am today. So then after becoming an attorney, so I guess let me say I, we, I don't practice traditional law, uh, but my law degree is very helpful, I believe, in what I do in governmental affairs work. And, uh, and we do a little bit of legal work on the side on stuff that we really want to, mainly related to agricultural operations. So I'm not, I'm not a, a therapist or a psychologist, but I feel like we should unpack a little bit what drew you to this industry and, and saying, I want to be, I want a career in, in the Capitol building, trying to convince 165 people to see things the way I'd like them to see it. No, that's, that's, that's a great, very observant point. I, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm crazy, but, uh, I get. I think it's probably the people. I mean, I I often tell people the thing I enjoy about the job the most is even with people you disagree with in the state house, 
at the end of the day, everyone or a vast, vast majority of people are well-intentioned and they truly believe that what they're wanting to do and wanting to accomplish is the right end policy goal. And and I guess that probably drew me into it. It's it's more of working through that process and 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 I think watching policy develop not only through the membership organizations, but then also through the the committee process and the, the debate that we have in this body. While frustrating at times, uh, I think that's probably what drew me to this insane world that we call Kansas politics and policy. <laughs> well, because it is kind of fascinating, right? You get to see, you know, like you said, there's the groups that have their their goals and what they'd like to see in policy, but you have all these people with a slightly different idea on what they'd like to see, and you kind of mash it all together, and somewhere out of that, it ideally emerges this combination of ideas and thoughts and understanding, really understanding if you can get to that point that 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 there are different ways to solve a problem and maybe if you incorporate those different parts. And, and I agree, that is, I mean, I'm just as crazy as you are because I'm still <laughs> here, but um, yeah, it's fascinating to watch that all play out. But when you, before you decided to be an attorney and, and take that route, you were you you were looking at a career in ag. I mean, it's you you grew up that way, and so your plan was to to go back and and do that, and and you still do that, yeah. right? You're still on the family farm, and so you're kind of doing dual things here. Yes, that that's correct. Actually, uh, yeah, my in, in, initial intention after deciding I didn't want to be a veterinarian, uh, or or my professor deciding I didn't want to be a veterinarian. Uh, I did actually get a decent grade, but I did not like that class. So uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 my intention was to eventually go back to the, the family operation. Uh, but but I, I hearken back to a conversation I had with my dad, actually. I don't even know if I, I think I was, I was probably out of college. It might've been when I was deciding to go to law school and we were, you know, talking about plans, et cetera. And, and, we had a frank conversation about if you really look at agriculture, the, the, the operations, and this is this is a little bit too broad of a brush to use, but the operations that are, are growing and expanding, there's usually other sources of income that, that are involved in those operations. Uh, and, you know, we kind of talked through it and I did get pretty good grades and had was, was thinking about law school, I believe that was at that time, uh, and just decided, you know, why not, why not pursue? proceed with a profession that could give me the flexibility potentially to come back eventually, but also give me the security of a little bit more stable income than agriculture provides. Uh, and I, I think the world of the people that can survive on an agricultural operation alone, but uh, it's a very capital intensive uh, endeavor. And and as you stated, actually, when I left the Kansas Livestock Association, we started Divine Donnelly and eventually Murray. Um, I did move back to central Kansas to the family farm and I'm actually active and a partner on that operation with my, <clears throat> with my family. I've got three preteen and teenage boys that are starting to outwork me, which isn't <laughs> that hard, but anyways, they do a lot of the work and my 70 something year old father does a lot as well. So. Uh, it's, it's good to have people that'll help you out, especially when you're up here during yeah. session so much. Well, we talked a little bit before we started recording uh, and you kind of touched on it there. The, um, it the 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 business of farming and ranching is is a difficult one and uh there are a lot of variables that play into that and and it's it's not a guarantee that that somebody's going to be okay and we were talking a little bit about different things happening in the world for instance right now we have what's happening in the ukraine and, and russia and and that 
it might be over there, but it's playing a role in what's happening in ag markets right now. Can you talk about that a little bit? No, I think, yeah, it's a great point. I guess I'll use it as a personal example just to tie in what we had just talked about. Last Thursday, well, two weeks ago, we consigned uh, some cattle that we have that have been grazing wheat all winter uh, to a, a video auction. Uh, long story short, the auction was Thursday, uh, the video auction. I, it's kind of a new technology where a lot of people sell cattle that way. And I actually tease my dad because he actually drives down to Oklahoma city to the site where the auction's taking place to be there, to watch the video auction take place. But that's, that's another story (laughs) (laughs) about early and late adapters to technology. Uh, but the, uh, Thursday was the day of the sale. And of course you wake up or go to bed, I guess actually is when you'd hear, heard that the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine had happened. And, what that has done is create commodity prices. They're Russia and Ukraine are major exporters, number one of fertilizer uh, and also of wheat. And so grain prices the next morning when the board of trade opened shot up immensely. Uh, I don't remember what the numbers, I know wheat was well over $9 at, at that time. And that, because that is the one of the input costs of feeding cattle, what we were selling was cattle that would then go on feed. So the price for those feeder cattle went down and back to your question it, it's it just shows the things that are totally out of your control that you can manage everything properly do all the right things with the technology and market your cattle correctly but at the end of the day you're also subject to the whims of the market and in my worldview, that's okay it's frustrating at times uh, i wouldn't want it any other way but uh, so then the decision is, is do we actually go through and sell the cattle and we did but but i think it, it that just shows the point that you have uh, that you mentioned that uh, there's a lot of things out of your control and it is a tough, it's a tough business. I mean, it's, it's subject to the whims of the market and the market can be harsh at times. Uh, but like I also said, personally, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, talk to me a little bit about that considering, you know, that all these variables that play a role in farming and ranching, all the market conditions that exist that are way outside your control. It, like I said, something happens halfway across the world and it, and it messes up your whole plan. What is it about that life? What is it about that career that that keeps people wanting to do it? Yeah. Oh, we we have mostly cattle and we operate most of the things on horseback. So I guess there's the romanticism aspect of it. You know, I think uh, the world looks better on the back of a horse in, in my view. But uh, that, that's a really poor way of saying what Ronald Reagan said more eloquently. I can't remember his exact quote, but... Um, I think it's that romanticism and it's, it's an, it's a challenging business. Uh, there's things that aren't in your control, but at the end of the day, if you can operate your operation in a more efficient manner, uh, and, and continually improve, uh, you can have a, a sustainable operation. And then there's also the, the, the draw to the land. You know, that's just this, it's a spirit. It's a Kansan spirit mm-hmm. as well, uh, that, that we're just drawn to the land and, and there's the, I guess the, to produce something from nearly nothing, just what what nature allows, uh, is is a very satisfying process. Uh, there's times where where it doesn't go as planned, and that can be very frustrating. But but the successes are are very satisfying. So I guess maybe that that would be uh, my way to interpret why a lot of people are drawn back to that lifestyle. And as you know, you live in rural Kansas. Rural Kansas is a great place to raise raise a family and, yeah. and to live. Yeah, no, there's there's nothing quite like it. And I know growing up, being able to wander outside of town and be 
out, you know, in it, I lived in a tiny little town, but, you know, being out, uh, going out to, you know, my Mrs. Gladden, my teacher's farm and hanging out there, working out there. She kept me out of trouble with that. But, um, you know, it's just, yeah, it is. It's just being out in the open like that. And I think it, it's, it's a different, well, I think about it, it's kind of, it's a way of life and it's a way of life. I think for people who have been in it or been connected to it, uh, can't imagine doing anything else. Can't imagine going and punching a clock or on a factory floor or anything like that, even if they have to, like you said. So as you think about it, talk, talk to me about what we talk about, kind of how market conditions or, or current events that happen across the country uh, affect things. But can we talk a little bit about just generally some of the changes that we've seen in agriculture over the years? I mean, talking about this idyllic life, I think there's a what used to be, you know, a family farm and and uh, and everything, and it and it has changed over the years. It's harder for somebody with a 160 acres to make that work, and and the operations are bigger and they're more efficient, and and there's been a lot, and, it, and it's a business. It's not it's not like it, you know, throw some seed in the ground and and hope for the best and hope and pray for rain. It's it's a it, there's a lot to it. In your time or kind of over your experience, what sort of notable changes have you seen in agriculture over the years? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, precision farming is one that's made drastic changes since in, in my adult life, quite frankly, where you can, you know, you can put the seed and the fertilizer and all of the, the inputs in exactly the right spot uh, to enhance uh, your production and, and become a more efficient operation. I think that would probably be the the a major change that's happened in my adult lifetime. I mean, if you look back over the years, I mean, we went, as you said, a, a quarter section or an 80 and a mule and a plow. I mean, we are not there anymore. Uh, and I think that at some level, that that's part of the romanticization of agriculture. There's, there's still people, I don't think they actually think that's how it still works, but that's how they want to think it still mm-hmm. works. You know, a, a family farm today may be 30,000 acres of farm ground, uh, a, a cattle feeding operation or whatever else, and an investment in an ethanol plant. Uh, that's still a family-owned operation. And while from afar it can look like, wow, that's a, that's a lot, there's also usually a lot of debt behind that as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's to, to, to your your comment about the idyllic nature or the the... the view idyllic view of the family farm i think it's still there it just looks different than it used to Uh, i think a lot of people don't understand what they like to call industrial farming or factory farms those are mostly family farms still Uh, i mean i don't like those terms naturally because i don't think they truly describe uh the reality but but it's and and it's changed how agriculture is viewed especially as we get the disconnect of people being further and further removed from the farm, uh, you know, or even rural communities. You know, I'm, I'm, I often joke with a neighbor friend of ours, uh, that actually he was involved in governmental affairs back in the seventies. And, and we, we, you know, they, as people get older, they tend to think that these other people that live different styles of life, that they, they, uh, they, they just don't think they're normal. And we were finally came to the realization one day over a beer that, uh, Oh, we're not the normal ones, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that's a, I, I think that's one thing agriculture struggles with is we, we live our life and we're so consumed by it that we don't understand how other people view us sometimes. And we need to do a better job of, of getting 
our message out there. And quite frankly, it's conversations like you and I always have. I mean, not that you're detached from rural Kansas because you're not. You're part of rural Kansas. But, you know, it's the, these conversations need to happen because uh, I truly believe, you know, there's some people in agriculture say that people don't know where their food come from. Well, they do know. They just don't know exactly how it's done. And that's where we could improve. We, When you open up a conversation of, you know, that, oh, you don't, you know, the six-year-old in Chicago doesn't know where chocolate milk comes from. Well, that's, I mean, you're not, you're not opening yourself up to a very friendly environment. We need to approach that a little bit differently. And, and of course, that's the most extreme of the examples, right? When we say there's that, but, but it is true that people, they, they know it comes from a farm or they know that it comes from, you know, agriculture work, but maybe don't fully understand all that goes into that. And I, we, you know, one of the things I always bring up, you talked about precision ag and I know, I visited a farm out in Western Kansas that, I mean, they're looking at satellite images and they're applying the right kind of fertilizer only in the places that need it. And they can, they can, they can, you know, look at that and see what, what the field needs. So they're not overusing inputs. They're not overusing fertilizer. Um, there's a lot that I'm seeing that coming up with soil probes, knowing what soil temperature is. And there's a lot of experimentation going on with cover crops. And and can you use that to reduce uh, water consumption? Can you use cover crops to reduce soil temperature? Uh, just a lot that goes into that to make sure that, I mean, and that's one thing that's always struck me is the, the, the I, some, in some, some circles, the idea is that industrial agriculture is wasteful and inefficient. Um, and but, but what what I think if you really get into the the details of it, what you see is a highly efficient operation that's trying to uh, preserve resources, trying to use as little inputs as possible, and trying to uh, recycle and reuse as many things as they can. No, I think that that's a great point, and I I would make the argument that many of the things you just mentioned, whether it be cover crops or soil probes, etc., uh, at the end of the day, that not only does it improve the environment and the environmental footprint, but the economics also improve as well. So the, the I would make an argument that the best way to make environmental progress is to create the economic uh, signals to encourage that type of activity. And I think that's what we're doing. I mean, it, look, we politics come to play at some level too, and, and, and there, there's always ebbs and flows and pushing and pulling going on. But at the end of the day, I think what you've seen with agriculture over the last century or more than a century even, is you've seen that that the economics will eventually get us to where we're doing things in a more environmentally friendly manner. And, and it's 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 a challenge getting there at times. And, and sometimes the rhetoric and the dialogue is somewhat missing. I, I go back to, there needs to be more conversations like this and fewer conversations uh, on paper being traded back and forth in lawsuits, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, well that's an interesting thing because there, there is a, sometimes a, a, at least the perception is there's a pretty big gap between rural, rural America, urban America, rural Kansas and urban Kansas. Um, but, but really, particularly in a state like Kansas, these things are interconnected, right? I mean, the, the a lot of activity that happens in, in cities is supported by some of the agriculture activity and I mean, I mean, aside from me and you sitting down and having a conversation, what 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 are some things that we might want to do to, I guess, increase that understanding? Because for me, that's always what it's about. It's like, can we un- increase the understanding between people who have different points of view? 
I'm sure this podcast is going to get many hits and, and be Millions. spread over the world. Uh, so I guess this is our start. Uh, no, um, I, I, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a good answer to that, honestly. I think uh, honest conversation is the obvious starting point. And, and, and quite frankly, I don't think this just applies to ag- agriculture, but toning down the rhetoric a little bit at times would probably be helpful. Uh, and that's probably on both sides. Uh, as as politics come into things, especially on these policy discussions, I think it it drives the rhetoric to a level that is not healthy for good discussion right now. Uh, and that that's a much broader statement than just agriculture, obviously. So I guess that that's what I think would help make help bridge that divide because that divide's not going away. I mean, we you can see population trends, you know, and and. There's going to be more people in urban areas and more fewer people in rural areas. Uh, although there's some some people would say there's a little bit of that flowing back into the rural areas, but I'm I'll, I'll believe it in ten years when I see it. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, so I guess to just open those conversations and 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 from the agriculture perspective, producers out there need to realize that that you know it's. It's not like it was 30 years ago in the legislature where 40% or whatever percent of the representatives in the state of Kansas were farmers. Uh, I, I, I can think we could probably count what I would consider farmers on one hand yeah. uh, in the state legislature. And, and that so that changes your voice. That changes the, the nature of the discussion. And I know that ties it back more to politics than just the general question that you had. But I think it's a... It's a microcosm of society, and, and we're going to be faced with these these discussions and and faced with this challenge moving forward. And quite frankly, I think the onus is probably on rural Americans and rural Kansans to, to, to utilize our voices to explain what we do and why we enjoy rural Kansas and why urban uh, our urban neighbors need to have an appreciation for that and, and understand where we're coming from. So it, it comes down to conversations like this at the end of the day. As you were talking, I, th- I thought, you know, there's been kind of a bigger push in the last, I would say, maybe decade or so to uh, create some agritourism businesses. Do you think things like that help bringing people out to a farm and seeing the operation and identifying that this isn't a thing, it's people doing a thing? And because they're doing that thing, I get to enjoy this and have this good weekend or whatever. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a great activity. Agritourism's a, a number one. It's an economic growth point that we can utilize uh, for, you know, speaking of outside income to keep the, the farming operation afloat. Uh, there's been some very successful ventures. I think those are good. Uh, I think the, the challenge is, is. I mean, I'll, I always tease him. I'll go back to my dad. He's kind of a grumpy old guy sometimes, <laughs> but I always tease him that maybe he should open a pumpkin patch just so he can be around people more. And he grumbles a little bit and we all get to laugh at his expense. So <laughs> so I guess agritourism may not be for everyone, but I think it's an opportunity. And it it's it subtly tells agriculture's voice. You know, I, I think we always go, well, the kids are getting a little older. We don't go as much, but uh, to a pumpkin patch every fall. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, while it's, the fun is why why we go. It's for the the slides and the the pumpkin projectile thing, whatever you. Shoot. Oh yeah, the sling. The either you either have a pumpkin sling or a pumpkin cannon. Yeah, right? cannon. Yeah. There you go. That's oh, what I love is. the pumpkin cannons. <laughs> so, so that's why I mean that's the fun part that you get to go see. But there's always things involved there that explain agriculture, and I yeah. think that has value uh, to people that generally wouldn't see it. So. Well, and that made me think. You know, another thing that's probably one of the more be- beings from Hutchinson. 
I'm, I go to the fair every year and the Farm Bureau always has a, a big ag display there and kids love it. And I, th I think things like that seem to be a pretty effective way to show uh, kids, particularly kids who live in the city, like, oh, this is what this is a tractor. This is yeah. how this all works. And um, th things like that, that just keep telling that message over and over that that create the connection between those two different groups of people. Yeah, I think that's like, I think you're probably Agerland is one of the things you're talking yeah. about in, at, at the state fair. And I, I have a different perspective on that because I used to have to work that right out of college <laughs> and it was a it was a slog at times, but it is very valuable and I'm glad they do that. And, you know, the Foundation for Ag in the Classroom, Kansas Farm Bureau, all the, the respective commodity commissions and other associations that are involved in that. I think it's a great effort. Uh, and the state fair in general is just a good way to get the the in, the entire state of Kansas to see some of what agriculture has to offer. So I'm a big supporter of the state fair. There's, there's times I don't want to be around that many people, but that's just a personality flaw. Well, and you're right. When you, when you have to work the fair and you're there for 12 hours or 15 hours, it, it is, I've worked booths there before and it is, it gets tiring at yes. the end of the day. Well, one of the things I was thinking about, and I've mentioned this to people before, if you really want to understand how, how things have changed over the years regarding ag. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I have a weird hobby of collecting old school books. Uh, and they all, uh, I always, if, if I can find a school book that's like from the early 1900s or even late 1800s, um, I always snag them at, at used bookstores. But one of the things that always fascinates me is that the math lessons in those books are almost always based around agriculture. I mean, the math question is you, how many bushels of grain can you fit in a wheat truck this size? And that's how they used to teach math was it was so aggregate. I mean, the state was so based and steeped in agriculture that when they're teaching kids uh, algebra, they're, they're using uh, or simple math. They're using they're using familiar things like wheat production to teach them about it. Wow, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that about you, but I, I uh, yeah, I guess. You could probably actually know what a rod is. You know, not many people know what a rod is. <laughs> yeah. I have to go to the old school books, I guess. But uh, I collect statute books from the the uh, the past, and my goal is to get the current statute book down to the size of a 1912 Kansas statute book. I'm not succeeding. Good luck with that. <laughs> they, they, they keep adding new copies every year. We're in my office, and I've got my statute books up here. And every year they come throw a few new volumes in here. Yeah, we, your, your collection may be more satisfying than mine because <laughs> I don't think I'll achieve my goal. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 don't, we, we seem to think we need to do something every year. And probably some years we don't need to do a whole lot. Um, well, one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you about, um, we've, we've cover a lot of ground on, on agriculture. And I, and, and, and I wanted to stay at this, this level here. Um, the other thing about agriculture, I think it's worth mentioning is it's, it, we paint it with kind of a broad brush and say agriculture, but there's a lot of pieces within agriculture, right? I mean, there's the, the veterinary part, veterinary part of it. There's uh, the, the farming, but even within farming, there's a lot of different things that people farm and, um, it, 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 talk about that, the complexity of that a little bit and the interconnectedness because agriculture isn't just agriculture. It's a lot of pieces that make up a whole. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. I mean, and from the representation of Kansas Farm Bureau, I mean, they are the broad agricultural organization. You know, you have the Soybean Association, Corn Growers Association, Livestock Association. So I think in Kansas Farm Bureau, you really see that 
the the broad nature of agriculture and and their goal is to be the overall general voice for agriculture so you know as all of those little different uh sectors of the industry interact and relate to each other there, there's obviously some things you know that a, a a swine producer in cherokee county might think differently about an ethanol plant than say a corn producer in in brown county that's that's probably not the best example but uh so so there's a balancing act on from a policy development standpoint on how you how you deal with all of those things but uh more specifically to your point is you know this the other part that often is lost in the state of kansas is the secondary and the tertiary markets that are created in businesses you know We've got Cargill Meat Solutions uh, in, located in Wichita. Uh, I mean, that, that's that's a huge operation. You've got you've got different fertilizer uh, production facilities. You've got you know sunflowers. You name it. There's just so many different aspects of it. It's, it's a very complex industry, and how it all interrelates sometimes is hard to understand, especially as you deal with the market forces and and how that all inter, the interplay works. Uh, but at the end of the day, I I am a believer that, that as all of that interrelates, I think if you just let let the systems work, it, we've proven that we can have good results. You know, we may need to tweak things here or there to to encourage different activities, but in general, uh, that that interplay eventually feeds its way through the entire system. So that, that's an inartful response to your comment but <laughs> well one of the things i was thinking about too is that just the kind of explosion in the last few years of like software companies and technology that are that are really tied to uh this precision ag um and i'm thinking about the dragon lines that you know when you see a, 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 a you know a, a irrigation system you know you used to see this big thing is just spraying all over and now you don't really see that much anymore you see these very it's dropping it's dropping the water right above the plant in most cases and i think that's been pretty widely adopted anymore yeah. hasn't it yeah that definitely has and you'll even see some subsurface drip irrigation systems where it's just coming that's just all piped under the ground and then soaks in through the soil so there's no evaporation at all i mean obviously economics once again comes into effect what what can work economically and depends on the farm in off, in many situations uh, but, you know, you might bring up a good example on software and then the technology side and the growth that's there. You know, I, there's a gentleman that I was in, attended Kansas State University with that, that started a company out in northwest Kansas that has really done well just going to precision agriculture and, and just the software and the equipment to do what you need to do to place, place that fertilizer and that seed in the exact spot that you want it. So yeah, the, the technology advances are immense. And, you know, we're not going to talk many specific issues, but uh, rural broadband's a, a great great point that I think everyone's on in, in favor of. And not just rural broadband, just broadband in general yeah. and making sure we have access everywhere. There's, there's portions in urban areas that don't have adequate yeah. internet. So... You know that that's one of those things that I think policymakers can 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 join forces on both urban and rural and and it's, and get positive results. So and it's absolutely necessary as tech excuse me as technology improves. Uh, that's going to only be more and more necessary. So and, and and that technology well and having good broadband in these rural areas and like you said in urban areas too. Um, it really is everyone needs it now. But for agriculture, it 
it allows this precision ag to happen and it yeah. and that allows kind of an increase in capacity and a reduction of expenses less pollution things like that right correct uh, all correct. of that's connected absolutely absolutely well before i let you out of here because we covered a lot of ground here i have one question i try to to ask everybody and we may have hit it already but i'll i'll ask it um what's one thing that you wish people understood about kansas agriculture that they might not know if they if they've never been connected to it or lived on a farm or worked on a farm? Wow, that's a great question. Um, the one single thing that I wish people knew, I guess what I would say is that uh, agricultural producers are doing doing what they love and trying to do it in the best manner possible for the environment, for the sustainability of their operations and the sustainability of agriculture. And at the end of the day, what they're doing is truly providing that food and the fiber and, and in some senses, some of the fuel for the world. And I think that's a very noble cause that sometimes gets lost in the discussion of what is a family farm and what's factory farming and all of these different things. But, but at the end of the day, these producers truly care, and 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 I I do I honestly believe it's a noble cause that that they're they're working towards. Look, there's there's things that can be improved, and we need to continue to have that dialogue. But but their heart's in the right place, so that's that's what I would say. That's a good answer. I like that, <laughs> and I and I think that too. So, well, John, thanks for taking some time. I I know we both have busy schedules up here, but I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and visit with me today. Thank you. I appreciate the the opportunity. It's always great to visit with you. Yeah, I, I hope we get to do it more. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigett put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.